From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And today we look back at a couple of our favorite interviews from 2023, along with my co-host John Wells and Katie Mullally. Can quantum computing solve humanity's biggest problems? We're joined by theoretical physicist Michio Kaku, who talks about his new book, Quantum Supremacy, how the quantum computer revolution will change everything. And then we're joined by writer Paul Bogard, who discusses the importance of the night sky and the impact of darkness on all forms of life. That's all coming up this hour on Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Katie Malali. Our next guest is Michio Kaku, who is a professor of physics at the City University of New York and the co-founder of String Field Theory. We last spoke with him in April 2021 about his book, The God Equation, which became a national bestseller. Kaku rejoins us this morning to talk about his new book, Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. The runaway success of the microchip processor may be reaching its end, but humanity's next great technological achievement, quantum computing, well, it's coming our way. And it may unlock our deepest mysteries of science and solve some of humanity's biggest problems like global warming, world hunger, and incurable disease. Michio Kaku, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Glad to be on the show. We're delighted to have you back. And you're, let's start with this. Your book's organized into four parts with four or five subchapters in each part. Tell us how your book is organized and presented. Well, I start chronologically. Uh, computers have gone through three basic stages. The first stage was analog computers, where we use levers, gears, pulleys, switches to do a calculation. You turn the crank and you do a calculation on an analog computer. Then World War II comes along, and there was a national priority to use electricity to create, uh, eventually, transistors to, to make the second generation of computers, the microchip. We're in the second stage now, but now we're nearing the end of the second stage. Moore's law, which says the computer power doubles every 18 months, is slowing down. We see that now because microchips are so small that transistors are gonna be maybe 50 atoms across. At that point, they short circuit. So we have to go to the third stage. The third stage is quantum computers, the ultimate computer. You can't get smaller than an atom. And we're gonna be computing on atoms with quantum computers. And this is not science fiction, they already exist. In fact, that's what's called quantum supremacy. Quantum supremacy is a time when a quantum computer can beat an ordinary supercomputer by a factor of millions of times on certain select tasks. Now, of course, these quantum computers cannot be used for general tasks, but for specific tax, tasks, they leave digital computers in the dust. And Michio, uh, before we get into the quantum area, I very much appreciate your respect and your reverence for what came before. And in your book, you talk about Bardeen, Bretain, Shockley, who brought us the transistor in 1956, made the trip to Stockholm to pick up their Nobel. And since that day, Moore's law has never missed a step. Can you just take a minute and talk about the significance of the transistor and how it scaled? Yes, the transistor is basically a gate. Think of a gate that governs the flow of electricity and then a valve. A tiny valve will control a large uh, amount of water in a pipe. Now replace the pipe with electricity and replace the valve with a transistor. You now understand how transistors work. A transistor is a little valve that allows you to control the flow of a large amount of electricity. But you know, transistors are so tiny now that you can pack a billion of them on something the size of your fingernail which means that each transistor is about maybe 20, 30, 50 atoms across. At that point, if you get any smaller, the quantum principle takes over. You don't know where the electron is anymore and it leaks out. That's why, here's the question. Would you buy a new computer for Christmas 
knowing that it's just as powerful as last year's model. We're talking about a collapse of the industry. Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. There could be mass unemployment in Silicon Valley because no one wants to buy a new computer. That's where quantum computers come in because they compute on individual atoms. Now, an atom can be either, let's say, positive or negative, or let's say zero and one. It's called binary, okay? So an atom in a magnetic field can either be up or down, zero or one. But now a quantum computer comes in. A quantum computer says, no, 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 no. Think of the atom in all possible orientations. How, many, how much more power do you have if you calculate this way? Well, obviously you have an infinitely more number of st states to calculate with. So a quantum computer is infinitely more powerful than a digital computer. We can solve problems that would take forever on a, on a digital computer and solve them like that on a quantum computer. This is amazing, absolutely amazing. So in your book, I love how you you talk about all these different potential areas or you know probably probable areas for quantum computers and the, the solving of the problems such as global warming, uh, cancer curing. So what will that data input look like into a com quantum computer as opposed to what we input now into our typical computers? Uh, well, a typical computer inputs uh, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, digital information. But that's only a tiny fraction of what's actually available. Think of Mother Nature. When you walk outside, you see photosynthesis happening. And then you say to yourself, wow, does Mother Nature use zeros and ones, zeros and ones? No. <laughs> Mother Nature is way past zeros and ones, zeros and ones. It's way past digital. Uh, Mother Nature talks the language of the atom. And the language of the atom is different from zeros and ones, zeros and ones. The language of the atom is in waves, waves of electrons. And therefore, we want to create a computer that speaks the language of Mother Nature. For example, photosynthesis. Mother Nature takes light, photons, combines it with carbon dioxide to create oxygen and, uh, let's say, uh, chlorophyll. And as a consequence, that drives the world. The world is driven by photosynthesis. That is a quantum process. Now try to duplicate that with a digital computer. <laughs> you can't. Right. Some of the processes, uh, for example, taking nitrogen out of the air to create fertilizer, okay? Um, vegetables do that. Vegetables can take uh, nitrogen out of the air and create a fertilizer. But we cannot do that with an ordinary digital computer. You need a quantum computer to do something like that. So to create a second green revolution, to feed the world, we may have to use quantum computers. And that's just the beginning. So what, I'm such a visual person, and, and, so, and you work in theoreticals. How, what will it look like to receive the data from a quantum computer? Will it look like a spreadsheet of numbers and theories and equations? Uh, well, it's not going to be a series of numbers because that's the language of digital. Okay, zeros mm -hmm. and ones, zeros and ones. First of all, how will we communicate with a quantum computer? You're not going to have a quantum computer in your living room because they're probably going to be very big, okay? Because you have to cool it down to near absolute zero. Probably it's going to be hooked up to your wristwatch or maybe your contact lens. So your contact lens will be connected to the web, which is in the cloud. So the quantum computer is not gonna be in your laptop. The quantum computer is gonna be in the cloud. It'll communicate with you through your wristwatch or your, your contact lens. You will blink and you will have access to the entire storehouse of human knowledge. And so that's the kind of information that we're gonna be storing with a quantum computer. And again, we don't insert tape into a quantum computer because that's what we do with a digital computer, okay? But uh, there are different ways of doing it, different ways of using electromagnetic radiation to communicate with atoms because that's the language of nature. The language of nature is the language of atoms.
If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Michio Kaku, who has written The God Equation. We spoke to him back in April 2021. Please go ahead to uh, Cool Science Radio and grab that podcast. It's a fascinating conversation. And this morning, we're speaking to him about his new book, Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. And Michio, Classical computers have error correction, and that's pretty important. And for just one application, a trading floor application, where hundreds of millions of dollars uh, can be uh, lost or found, uh, you know, per second, it's it's important to have accuracy. And uh, because we can't get to absolute zero, what sort of challenges does that present for the quantum computer? Well, if you were to look at the weak spot the weak spot of quantum computers, it would be in that very same question of error correction. You see, if somebody sneezes in the background, if somebody jumps up and down or talks too loud, the vibrations normally we would simply dismiss, but these vibrations at the atomic level could disturb the calculation and ruin the calculation. Therefore, you have to cool everything down to minimize noise, to minimize disruptions. You have to cool it down to near absolute zero. And that's costly. That's why quantum computers are so big. If I showed you a picture of a quantum computer, it looks like a chandelier. But you see, the chandelier is not the computer. The chandelier is the cooling system, a very elaborate set of pipes they give you near absolute uh, zero. The actual quantum computer is about this big. We're talking about something this big is the actual size of the quantum computer. So that's the weak spot. Now, Mother Nature has solved that problem. When you go outside, you're looking at quantum computers in the flowers, the trees, the leaves. Photosynthesis is a quantum process. Mother Nature has quantum computers at room temperature. We're not there yet. Mother Nature is still one step ahead of us. Yeah, they certainly are. It's just fascinating. Uh, you, you mentioned something in the book which really caught my attention, and that was after Google made its claim of achieving, achieving quantum supremacy, the Chinese announced they broke a barrier of calculating in 200 seconds what would take a digital computer a half a billion years, 500 million years. Um, I know that, there, that there's a lot of uh, uh, excitement and those sorts of things, but this it sounds very sensational, but is that, uh, is that possibly true? Uh, yes. First of all, it's a horse race. And first out of the gate are, one, the Chinese, and two, IBM and, and the Americans. Now, what the Chinese have done is instead of using electricity, which is slow when we compare it to the speed of light, they use light. They use photons to do a calculation. And they use beam splitters to split the beam, and then you have a whole bunch of arrays of mirrors and things like that to do a calculation. And they can do a calculation, as you as you uh, said, millions of times faster than a regular computer. So it's a horse race. First out of the gate is IBM and, and the Chinese, but very close behind is, is Google and Microsoft and Honeywell and all the other companies. So it's a horse race and there's billions of dollars being put on the table now. We're talking about big bucks. Some of the biggest bucks in Silicon Valley are lining up to see which version of the quantum computer will win the race. And who is watching this race? The CIA. Uh. <laughs> because they know that whoever wins this race can break into any other digital computer and steal the crown jewels. That is, all the top secrets of nations are guarded by codes, but a quantum computer in principle is so powerful, you can break the codes. So who's interested in setting guidelines for quantum computers? The U.S. government. This is big bucks. There's a lot riding on this. Um, one of the many things I loved about your book was it really brought the idea of quantum computing to the everyday person and how it can affect our lives because you read about it, well, not you read about it, you look at it and you go, that's not, I'm never going to understand that. But how you portray this in the book, it's like, look, this is going to affect all of us. And with all of the areas that you talk about, again, climate change, cancer curing, was there an area that really, that you got you really excited about? Well, one thing that is right out of the headlines of medical journals is the question of Alzheimer's disease. 
You know, that could be the disease of the century. My mother, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease and it was heartbreaking talking to her, knowing that she didn't recognize me. She didn't even know that she had a son. Mm -hmm. That's the devastation caused by Alzheimer's disease. And now we know, we, we solved the riddle. How is it possible that some people have gummed up brains with lots of gums in their brains and yet they're perfectly normal? Now we realize that there are at least two types of amyloid proteins that gum up the brain, two types. One type actually will eventually kill you, and the other one is actually rather harmless. It turns out that at the molecular level, one Alzheimer's molecule spins to the left, but the other one spins to the right. These are molecules that spin in different orientations. One of them kills you, the other wow. one doesn't. And if we can then use quantum computers to separate, to separate these two, we may have a handle. We just might have a handle on how to cure the disease of the century. Because when you start to hit your 80s, about 50%, about 50% of the people have Alzheimer's disease when you're in your 80s. And so this could be a cure, well, possible cure for the disease of the century. So as scientists are working on the quantum computer, are they working directly with these other scientists and experts in these fields, such as Alzheimer's, to ensure that what they develop will be useful? Uh, yeah, they consult. Uh, in different areas, these people who do quantum computers are consulting with people in industry, in the sciences. Uh, for example, uh, I'm a physicist, and our biggest atom smasher is in Geneva, it's called the Large Hadron Collider. It's about as big as the city of Geneva itself. It's so huge. And now we use quantum computers. We're actually using quantum computers to analyze the data by smashing atoms apart. And that may give us an inkling of the secret of creation itself. Why was there a Big Bang? Why did the universe set off the way it did? Why do we live in this universe? We may answer that question with a quantum computer that is already now being used to process the data from the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. So there's a lot writing on this, on the promise of quantum computers. Michio, I'm, I'm curious about this. Um, it, it, there, there were so many um, interesting things in your book, but the thing that really uh, grabbed my attention was a, was a quote that you gave of Richard Feynman. Nature isn't classical, damn it. If you want to make a simulation of nature, you better make it quantum mechanical. That was the quote. And when I heard that, when you start thinking about the world through uh, the natural environment, through nature as being a quantum machine, it kind of changes the way you look at the world. And it kind of gives you an appreciation of what these quantum computers might be able to do, maybe not at room temperature, but uh, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. Right, and if you want to see what a quantum computer can do, simply go outside to a garden. When you look at a garden, you look at the flowers and the leaves and everything like that, what's happening? These are quantum processes. Light combined with carbon dioxide giving you oxygen and, and uh, chlorophyll. This reaction drives the world. And Mother Nature solved that problem billions of years ago. This is old hat for Mother Nature. So we're simply retracing the steps that took place billions of years ago. Our machines today are still clumsy. I'll have to admit that. But one day, they'll be perhaps right up there with Mother Nature. Mother Nature is, in some sense, a quantum computer. All the wonders that we see around us are quantum mechanical. And nature does not use the language of zeros and ones. That's a human language. We humans devise the language of digital. That's what we call the digital revolution. The right. next revolution is going to be the quantum revolution, where we don't use zeros and ones anymore. And so global warming, energy, fusion power, all these things can be recast in the language of quantum computers. There are a lot of questions that everybody has of, of all the different approaches for quantum computing. What one question do you have that has not been answered yet that you'd like to have answered? Well, I would like to know, how is it possible that Mother Nature could do everything at room temperature? We, cl as clumsy as we are, we have to cool everything down to near absolute zero so that there's no vibrations. And what Mother Nature does is that Mother Nature takes a snapshot, a very, very quick snapshot before all the air is built up. 
And that's why they can do quantum calculations at room temperature. That's what we really need. Who wants to have a gigantic chandelier in your living room doing a calculation? It's going to be put in the cloud. And it's not going to be something that you can put in your living room. But like I said before, in the future, we'll communicate with that in the cloud. And that's how the average person will be able to communicate with a quantum computer. For example, we can now analyze your blood to pick up 50 different kinds of cancer, a blood test. Think about this for a moment. We didn't have that before, but this year it's now legal to get a blood test to analyze 50 different kinds of cancers. I think in the future, maybe your toilet will be hooked up to a quantum computer analyzing instantly your blood from billions of people on the earth to search for cancer. In other words, the word tumor may disappear from the English language. Quantum computers may cure the cancer epidemic in the world by analyzing people's blood without even your knowing it, analyzing it in the cloud and then telling you that you have cancer or telling you that you should start to change your diet and things because you could be having cancer. So the cure for cancer could be quantum computers. Well, in your book, you talk about how AI and quantum computing are working together. They're learning, they're problem solving, they're bringing in new variables. How are they separate from one another? Because I think most of us just assume that they're all the same thing. Well, th think of the controversy about uh, chatbots, for example. A chatbot is basically software, software that combines different essays on the web and cobbles together your, your essay. So this is a product of basically software, not hardware. Quantum computers is hardware. We're talking about the real guts of a computer program. And so with hardware, we can now cre uh, um, compensate for the deficiencies of software. What's the problem with chatbots? The problem is they can lie. They can mm -hmm. deceive. Okay, teenagers can write all sorts of nonsense, which are then incorporated into your essay. And so all sorts of nonsense jumps out. Fact-checking is too difficult for software, cannot be done. Therefore, fact-checking is simply not there. However, that's where hardware comes in now. Quantum computers is hardware. Hardware is powerful enough to do a fact-checking. And that's how we can remove all the idiocy, remove all the nonsense that creeps into the internet. Uh, because the internet, all it does, it cobbles together existing essays that are already written by some human i.e. a teenager <laughs> wanting to create havoc on the internet. And so that's why they work together. AI that we talk about in the newspaper is basically software. Quantum computers is hardware. And we need the hardware to do fact checking of the software. So we've got the quantum computers getting ready to answer all of these scientific questions and hard, um, well, basically scientific questions. But also, can it answer, will it be able to answer philosophical questions? Because some of that isn't based in fact. Uh, well, quantum computers basically use what is available, which is quantum mechanics, the quantum mechanics of atoms. Okay, once you talk philosophy, you're talking uh, at the very edge of what is known about the quantum principle. You see, the quantum principle works in multiple universes. Uh, we don't tell high school kids this when they learn chemistry and they learn a little bit of quantum uh, chemistry. We don't tell them this because it kind of freaks them out. But quantum mechanics exists in parallel universes. That's why it's so powerful. How come a quantum computer can outrace a digital computer? Because a quantum computer operates in many universes at the same time. Now, this sounds like something from Marvel comics or something from science fiction. But where did science fiction get this? Science fiction got the idea of a multiverse from quantum physics. In quantum physics, we have the famous cat problem, that a cat in a box can be dead and alive simultaneously. Now, if a cat can be dead and alive simultaneously, it means you can compute simultaneously in different universes. And that's the power of quantum computers. So this is philosophy. So you're absolutely right. Uh, ultimately, you bump up against the question, why? Why are quantum computers so powerful? Because they compute in different universes at the same time. Michio, I spent a lot of time out at Bell Labs in Homedale and also in Murray Hill. 
And I, I used to love going into the lobby a little earlier so that I could look at their Hall of Fame. I mean, 26,000 patents, uh, the laser, the transistor, charged couple device, photo photovoltaic cell, Unix, the C operating programming language, and of course, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias, who uh, found and discovered the microwave background. It, it's just fascinating that we had this organization that did basic research. I, I, I want to talk about something I've been thinking about, and that's that our, our U.S. kids in the United States have been dead last in math and reasoning skills. And since the pandemic, it's gotten even worse. Where will the next Edison, the next Bardeen, Bretagne, Shockley, where, where, where will these people come from? Well, you're right about the American educational system. On average, the average high school kid scores near bottom near bottom on almost every single international science test monitored by the UN and other international organizations. Dead last. However, there is one saving grace, and that is the so-called genius. The guy who is a little bit of a, of a crazy person like Steve Jobs as a kid, but is you know has, has a brilliant, imaginative, creative mind. These people are nurtured in our society. And so that's a saving grace that we do produce the Steve Jobs. We do produce these people that are at the cutting edge because they have an imagination that cannot be stopped, okay? We have to nurture that. But like I said, in the future for the job market, we have to make sure that the average person has a slot waiting for them when they graduate from high school. So we have to make sure that not just the geniuses, but the average person can fit into this process. Because, of course, things are not getting less technical, they're getting more technical. And think of a, um, a blacksmith. We don't have blacksmiths anymore, but we don't cry about that because, of course, blacksmiths became automobile workers. But now we have a computer revolution, and we have to make sure that there are jobs waiting for people that are monitoring, servicing, making possible the computer revolution. Michio Okaku has just written Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. Michio, we want to thank you for joining us again on Cool Science Radio, and we wish you continued success with the program. Okay, thank you very much. Glad to be on your show. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. While most of the world is concerned with light and illuminating the world around us at all times, our next guest, writer Paul Bogard, is focused on darkness, and not only as access to the stars above, but that nighttime is just as vital as the day. Paul is the author of The End of Night, Searching for <coughs> Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light, and is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Audubon, and National Geographic, to name just a few. Paul, thank you for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Oh, my pleasure. So we're all mostly starting to understand and appreciate the importance of light pollution and dark skies and reducing you know, the light that permeates the night. But as you point out, night or darkness is so much more than just the absence of light. It's more than just a conduit to view the night skies. Darkness is actually its own ecosystem. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. The I guess I'd start with something that a biologist told me when I was doing research for the book, which is that all life on Earth has evolved with bright days. We obviously need light, um, but also with dark nights, and we need darkness as well. So, um, you know, up and down the food chain, that includes human beings, uh, any kind of living thing, we need darkness. And so this uh, relatively recent explosion of artificial lighting into uh, ecosystems has really had a negative effect, I guess I'd say. I only pause because, uh, you know, the studies haven't caught up with with probably where we are. Um, I was just talking with somebody who said, you know, there isn't a lot of studies showing that wildlife is impacted, for example, by artificial light. And I just said, that's just because we haven't studied it. Um, every Everything we do study seems to reflect the fact that being exposed to all this light at night is not good for living creatures. And that includes human beings. Nighttime is really a wonderful uh, time for wildlife, for the wild world. It's when so much of the wild world comes alive. 
uh, especially now when humans dominate the day. A lot of creatures have uh, evolved to depend on darkness. And once one thing that's really interesting is we're finding a lot of uh, a lot of animals that are increasingly spending more time in the darkness, uh, coming alive at night as well, because they know that's the time when they can they can um, they don't have to uh, spend all their time avoiding human beings as they do during the daytime. So the importance of nighttime, it's always been important. Um, we have so many nocturnal creatures and then even more crepuscular creatures active at dawn and dusk. So that's always been true, but then you add in the the dominance of the daytime by human beings, and I think uh, night has become even more important. Darkness has become even more important for the wild world. Yeah, I was fascinated with that article that you wrote in Audubon in 2021 regarding the migration of birds at night, and 594 million birds migrated one night in September, spanning the Gulf of Mexico up to the upper reaches of the U.S. That's an astounding number of creatures, and that's just in one swath. What other animals do we find utilizing the night as much as birds do? Yeah, the um, actually the animals that use the airspace are quite is, is a good place to look with that. So obviously the birds. Scott Wiedensall, who's a you know well-known writer uh, about birds, has said that if we could see nocturnal migration at night, it would be the greatest wildlife spectacle on the planet. And I think when you look at those maps um, of using weather radar to show us the migrations at night, it really reflects that fact. It's just this unbelievable movement of, of birds, of biomass, overhead that most people are uh, oblivious to. We don't, we don't even know that it's happening. So, but then insects is another huge one. Lots of nocturnal insects, a lot of uh, insects on the move, certainly bats um, using nighttime as well. So uh, that airspace, um, people talk about the new field of aeroecology, the study of the life in the air. So nighttime is really important to them. And then down on the ground, you have all sorts of, um, Gosh, it's just, you know, up and down really throughout the ecosystem from mammals to amphibians to reptiles to, you know, you name it, active uh, active in the dark. Um, and even, you know, one of the ways that we know this is to look at the impacts to creatures. And we even see impacts to, uh, for example, fish of being exposed at night. It changes their behavior and that kind of thing. So again, you know, nighttime is just the I like to think of it as when the wild world comes alive um, and uh, the impact from artificial lighting is is uh, not good. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Paul Bogard about the night skies. His book is called The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Paul, you published this book in 2014. And I was going to bring up the point that it seems to me that in recent years, maybe your message and all of the, I mean, it's not the only book that you've written on the topic, have really gotten cities and towns, towns especially, to bring about some code changes and some policy changes about dark skies. And so I'm wondering what what you've seen. Has there been a positive change or are we still going more and more in the last nine years since you wrote the book in the direction of light night skies? Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful question and the answer is yes. <laughs> so there has been, uh, you know, I, I think I had kind of a fantasy that when the book came out, everybody would read it and everybody would would kind of react by saying, oh my gosh, you know, the way that we light is is really dumb, we should change it and that there would sort of be this wash of change across the land uh, as people figured it out and obviously that that didn't happen. But there has been a lot of change in the almost decade since the book has come out. A lot more people are aware of uh, our overuse and misuse of light at night, um, of light pollution. You see a lot more um, activism, a lot more advocacy for the issue, a lot more uh, the International Dark Sky Association has protected or helped helped various communities protect dark areas, dark communities. The National Park Service has really taken up the mantle for sure. Various 
towns and cities uh, across the, the country have stronger lighting ordinances, um, that kind of thing. So there's been a lot of a lot of positive change. But at the same time, you know, one of the biggest things that's happened since the book came out is just the um, tsunami of LED lighting, uh, which was really barely on the radar when I published the book. It's amazing, you know, in not even a decade, how how we've changed from being dominated by electronic light or electric lighting, which is what we all grew up with, to electronic lighting, um, which light emitting diodes, LEDs, now in you know every city um, across the country, and uh, that has made, for the most part, has made things worse because we've just taken the efficiency that comes with LEDs and thought, well, we can just cost the same. We'll just use more light, and so. At the same time, you have a lot of people more aware of light pollution. You also actually have the growth of light. Um, there was just a study that came out in Science Magazine that documented that over the last eight years, the sky glow, which is essentially the light in the sky worldwide, has doubled in the last eight years and continues to grow at about 10% worldwide. So, Wow. Good things are happening, but also the problem um, continues to grow. So do you think that sky glow doubling worldwide is attributable to the LEDs? A lot of it is. I mean, some of it is is just there are more there are more people uh, everywhere, and so we bring our lights wherever we go. Some of it is uh, developing countries lighting up their nights. You know, and unfortunately, uh, we've the West has, spread not only our 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 technology of lighting around the world but also sort of our thinking about lighting around the world um so you know that has led to the increase but i think it really is certainly in the states and in north america and europe uh, and then cities around the world it's been the growth of leds that has really led the uh increase in lighting so I know Lynn and I, and from reading your book, you as well grew up where we had access to the night sky, where we could see the constellations, where I think we are fortunate in the fact that we can really navigate ourselves within this space we call Earth and even our own homes according to the night sky. You know, I definitely orient myself to the night sky. And so much of the light pollution discussion is based around seeing the stars, which we all agree is very, very important because, you know, your daughter will grow up not seeing them all. And even in Park City, where we've typically been dark, it's getting lighter every day. <laughs> no pun intended there. But what are the health effects of light pollution for humans? You know, we just talked about how it affects animals, but there's got to be effects on us, whether it's our light receptors in our eyes, not being able to fall asleep. What are some of those health effects that we're seeing? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, the, the problem of light pollution is so relatively recent, you know, I say over just the last few decades that, again, the studies, as with wildlife, are continually coming in. But what we find, what seems like every study that we do tells us is that there is an impact to our, our physical health, certainly, and I would also add to our psychological and even spiritual health as well. It has a real impact on us physically specifically seems to impact us in three main ways impacts are disrupts our circadian rhythms so those uh, internal rhythms in our bodies that orchestrate all our different organs exposure to light at night seems to disrupt the circadian rhythms that's folks working the night shift especially are impacted that way contributes to sleep disorders so Sleep disorders are are tied to every major disease that we're dealing with, cancer, obesity, diabetes, depression, you name it. Um, and being exposed at night seems to contribute to sleep disorders. And then what they found is that uh, exposure to light at night disrupts the production of the hormone melatonin. And a lack of melatonin in the bloodstream has been tied to an increased risk for breast cancer, prostate cancer, that kind of thing. So in a way, you know, it's 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 kind of funny to say that unfortunately we can't make a direct link between, you know, being exposed to light at night and certain types of cancer, right? It seems funny to say that, but in a way it would be it'd be nice if we could make that direct link um, because it it would probably get people's attention. 
um, you would think if, if we could say that, but I think that there's enough already. I mean, and this was true 10 years ago, I was certainly convinced there's enough sort of circumstantial evidence in the studies that we've done that at the very least would say, you know, being exposed to artificial light at night is not good for us physically. And uh, again, I would also add psychologically and, and spiritually as well. I mean, just uh, as you say, you know, to grow up in an experience, uh, to grow up in a situation where you can walk out at night, and as I like to say, you know, come face to face with the universe is really, I think, in, an intangible value, but so important to us psychologically to be able to look up and see something much greater than ourselves. Um, priceless and and we've largely lost that experience in most places across the country um, and then you know spiritually just thinking about all the values of of uh you know um reflecting on our our place in the world in relation to the rest of creation um that kind of thing just it's one of those things like everybody would agree that it's important but nobody knows how to value it and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but you know, when, when people come along and say, yeah, but we need all this life for safety and security. So we got to light everything up and it's, you know, <laughs> it's hard, hard. How do you, um, how do you balance those, uh, those concerns with, uh, these health concerns? Well, you're right. In terms of lighting everything up in your book, you talk about the trespassing of light, you know, as when we have neighbors, we were very aware of the sound that they make or their, their shrubbery growing over our fence or whatever it might be. But we just simply let their obnoxious, massive light go all night without ever raising a stink. And we do have a right to darkness if that's what we're choosing. But because it permeates everything, is there a way that we can prevent some of that trespassing? Yeah, so the phrase light trespass is one that I, I've always been drawn to, um, in part because we live, as you say, you know, in this country where everybody's so, you know, aware of property rights and don't, you know, don't trespass on my, you know, property and my rights and et cetera. But then at night, we just let our light, you know, go ever, every which way. And a lot of us have experiences where our neighbor's lighting is coming into our house, you know, at night. So, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the, the key things that we can do with this issue in general, but certainly with light trespasses to shield our lights, you know, so the lighting is the lights are only going downward um, where we need them that actually would improve our safety. It, it makes it easier to see at night. Um, it would cut down on all the light that's going up into the sky and making no one any safer. Um, it would cut down on the ecological costs. And it would cut down on this problem that we're talking about, which is light trespass. If you're, if every light were shielded, so the light was just going down, it would, you know, more or less keep that light on the property that's being that's meant to be lit up, as opposed to shining onto the the neighbor's property as well. So there there are definitely things we can do, and of course, you know, turning your lights off. I mean, we we have this obsession with leaving lights on all night long everywhere, no matter if there are people there or not or anything, um, we could do a lot better with that side of things as well. It's funny, I'm sure our listeners are thinking about this now, that trespass, the light trespass. And I think if I live in this neighborhood that is removed from town. It's very rural, it's beautiful. And yet <laughs> there's one neighbor, one neighbor who, I'm not even sure why they feel like they have to light up the entire place. And it really, it does impact the night sky. And all of the neighbors sort of talk about it, you know, good naturedly, but say, has anyone brought this up to our, our one neighbor? And no one has. And, and in the last house I lived in, the neighbors, it was a second home. And this, this happens a lot where they want it to seem like there's someone there, even though they're not there because it's a second or third or fourth home. And so they leave lights on, you know, around the clock. And it makes me wonder if that should not be part of an ordinance. We do have an ordinance, and I'm not sure how it reads in Park City, but it's about downlighting. Lighting must be down. And maybe that's just on new builds. Maybe it's not addressing the existing issues. Do you, do you see that sort of thing? Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, a, a lot of uh, a lot of ordinances have a grandfather clause or whatever they call it. So if you know your neighbor's light was up, 
before the ordinance went in, they probably would be allowed to keep it. And then there's just, you know, the problem of enforcement where there's just, there, <laughs> nowhere are there, you know, light police going around checking um, the lighting. So it largely falls on neighbors maybe to call attention to it. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge and it's a shame, you know, that one, one person or one building, one company can, you know, have such a ruinous effect on, on all the other neighbors mm -hmm. for sure. In your TED talk that I believe is from about six years ago, you do these, a few things that really fascinated me. One is talking about Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night mm. and how he used to write to his brother Theo about the lights in Paris, which is kind of a joke now, because how could you ever see now any night sky, um, or rather he talked about the night sky in Paris. And then you go to the very spot in Arles in the south of France where Van Gogh painted Starry Night and you show a picture of what the night sky looks from the very spot that yeah. he painted that. Tell us what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it was a great experience to go to Arles and to see uh, where Van Gogh painted um, actually Starry Night over the Rhone, which is less famous than the one everybody knows, but it's a, still a beautiful painting of the the river and the the Big Dipper in the sky, which actually astronomers have figured out that it was behind him. He just used a little artistic license and put it in front of him. And, you know, I went there originally to the site during the day and there's a, you know, a big poster with the painting on it and says, you know, essentially on this spot, Van Gogh painted this painting. And I thought, well, I'll come back at night. And when I came back at night, it was this just, you know, it was all lit up, uh, big, a big uh, bright light kind of right at your feet, which kind of obliterated any, you weren't able to see basically beyond the the poster. And it was just, you know, so ironic of where we, where we've come uh, over the last, you know, 125 years or whatever it is. Well, I know some of your articles have, have been focused on the safety of lighting. You know, we think that the more lights we have, the safer we'll be. But I think we've all had this experience where, referring to Edward Abbey when he talks about in Desert Solitaire, the whole idea of having the flashlight. And when you're looking at the ground at the flashlight, that's all you see is what's in front of you in that little dome of light where the rest of it becomes very dark. I've had friends that stood up from the fire, walked away in the desert, and they're gone for a half an hour and they climb back into the camp light bloody and bruised because they fell off a cliff because their eyes hadn't adjusted. And so there's the two safety factors. One, are we losing the ability to see in the dark because mm. we have so much light around us? Are those cones and rods not functioning the way they should? And I guess my second part to that question is, does all of this light really keep us safe? Yeah, I mean, on some, on some level, that is the question when we talk about this issue. To the sort of, you know, our eyes adjusting, um, it's really fascinating to to look back at the history and to, and to think about how in uh, the time of gas lighting, gas lamps, I guess would be a better phrase, that, you know, our eyes adjusted to the dark and we saw those gas lamps as relatively bright because of that. And they, they served as good artificial light. Now, when you see a gas lamp, you're just, at least I have been sort of shocked by how not bright they are, but that's because our eyes have uh, never adjusted to the darkness. We're so exposed to artificial light at night that in many cities now, your eyes just basically never adjust to darkness. That's how bright it is outside. And then we go inside and, you know, it, it's all bright in our house as well. So yeah, that that is a unique experience. I think a lot of people are kind of shocked by when they do get to go outside, um, sit around a campfire or or what have you, and and have their eyes adjust to darkness and to realize how much we actually can see at night um, on, on very little natural lights um, and how the instant you turn on a flashlight or somebody, you know, flashes their headlights past you and you're just instantly kind of blinded. We don't have that experience very often. On the issue of safety, I was just talking with some, with a reporter the other day and they were asking me all about, you know, the value of seeing the sky and the stars and uh, 
you know, how important it is for wildlife and et cetera, et cetera. And, and they didn't ask me about safety. And I just said, you know, you really need to say something about safety and security because so many people listen to a discussion like this and in the back of their mind, or maybe even in the front of their mind, they're, they're thinking, yes, but we need all this light for safety and security. We've been brought up to think that we've, we've been brought up to think that because some light can help us be safer and more secure that ever more light will help us be more safe and more secure. And, you know, where does that stop? And I think the, just so many, you know, it's a, it's a complex issue. It's not simple. It's, it's not light is good and dark is bad. It's some light is, can be good. Oftentimes darkness can be better. When you see bright lights, it makes it harder for your eyes to see. Bright lights tend to cast shadows. They give the illusion of safety. Oftentimes we think, oh, it's all lit up. It must be safe. You know, it, it's an illusion. It's an illusion that bright lights keep the bad guys away. I mean, one of the first things that I heard when I was doing research was the bad guys are as afraid of the dark as we are, right? They want, they want something to be lit up so that they can see as well, whether it's a, a house or a, a possible victim, that kind of thing. So at the very least, I just wish we could get away from this idea that ever increasing light will make us ever safer. It just doesn't, the equation falls apart pretty quickly. We could do a lot for safety at night and for all these issues that we're talking about by shielding our lights. So the light is just coming down where we need it. So that would, that would make, make it easier to see, probably improve our safety actually, but this idea that we just, let's keep lighting everything brighter as a response to, basically as a response to our fear of the dark, which is what it, so much of it comes down to. Right. Paul, we're out of time, but I just wanted along those lines to recommend that TED talk that you gave because you also do this great little experiment in it showing how light actually is blinding you from being able to see the bad guy, right? And then when you put your hand up and shield the light, oh, then suddenly there's the bad guy. It's a little experiment that you stage, but it yeah. does really hit home that notion of, you know, if you downlight just enough light, then you're, you're going, you're not going to be blinded by the light. So, so that was, that was great. Well, thank you, Paul, for joining us today and enlightening us on the importance of the dark. I'm sure you've never heard that pun. Uh, to read more of Paul's articles and find his books, visit paul-bogard.com. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. And thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City.